crosstown conversations and man i have a studio full of creative socially active really interesting people all here primarily with one exception to talk about this year's film fest and y'all i don't know whether you're a film fest goer or not but this is one you are going to want to go to because the people that have been brought together to have their films shown and to talk about them are the most diverse mixture of people men women all colors all stripes i mean it is really a terrific roster of artists who've been included all of whom are doing very interesting but some of the very challenging work i viewed some of it it's very interesting stuff and i like interesting stuff i like the stuff that's a little bit less predictable now we're going to start however with gene menoray first of all gene are you on the line hello gene i think i have to press a button or is he on one or two one gene hi there gene to gene so Jean, Jean is one of the folks who's been a real soldier on the art scene in New Orleans, worked in a lot of um, contexts with the Arts Council, uh, now with something called the Ella Project that is really working hard to try to advance our cultural economy. And he is also um, been somebody who's been involved with the Guild, the Crafts Guild, for a long time, and he'll tell us the exact name of it, which has new um, home... And um, they are having their gala opening this weekend. So I asked Gene to come on uh, and invite you. So, Gene, what's the story? Well, the Louisiana Crafts Guild is a statewide organization. We're about 220 visual artists strong. And we've been around since the late 90s. But we haven't had a shop in New Orleans for quite a long time. And now we do. So we're very excited about La Guild. Uh, gallery that we have opened up in Canal Place, right downtown. For those of y'all who have been craft shoppers for a while, you probably remember the old Rhino Gallery in Canal Place. We've assumed the space that they have on the second floor, and we're having a grand opening Friday night, 4 to 7 p.m. We'll have artist demonstrations, we'll have some discounts, and we'll have all sorts of fun, handmade Louisiana products for people to take home and enjoy. You know, I've been following the uh, Craft Guild for a long time, and from the early days when they first had a shop at um, uh, Canal Place, and uh, it's always a really interesting, eclectic collection of of work, and um, certainly that's a characteristic of the kind of art and crafts that we have in New Orleans and Louisiana. Who just popped a... I want I want some of whatever that was. We all heard that pop. <laughs> was that on your end, Gene? Absolutely. Um, so <laughs> that was unfair. <laughs> That's uh, letting us know that you are going to pop the champagne bottles, I guess, also for your event. What what kind of things can people expect to see there? Sure. So one of the nice things with the Crafts Guild is we really do have a lot of work for everybody and for all different budget sizes. So we focus on handmade original 3D artworks. So what we're looking at there is jewelry, glass, ceramics, metalworks, um, wood furniture, 
but also, you know, like handmade roux spoons by an artist like Greg Arsenault. You know, New Orleans, we're always making a roux. You know, if it gets on your skin, it's like liquid napalm, right? So he's got these beautiful, long uh, cypress wood spoons, stir your roux a little bit. That's mm. like a, that's a very inexpensive item. We have, obviously, he makes armoires as well. They're more expensive. So a little bit of something for everybody, but all handmade, all Louisiana, and all just celebrating the... Um, the different beautiful work that we have all throughout this state. I think that's a key point that you have such a wide range in price uh, prices for um, people to select from. So if you want some really finer um, work, it's there. And if you want uh, everyday objects, they're also there. And um, that's what makes it so much fun is when you've got that range of things available to you. And, you know, our artists, I'm, I hate to say this, and it's unfortunate, but um, we don't get um, the price for our work as compared with other uh, metropolitan markets because we all know that we are living in a city that um, doesn't have a higher pay scale in general, and so uh, folks are appreciative of that and try to make things, uh, put things at a price point that are affordable for folks. So I know that there's going to be a lot of work that um, people can afford to buy. That's right. One of the nice things with the Crafts Guild is we're a nonprofit organization. So this is a nonprofit gallery. Now, obviously, we have expenses to pay, but our commission that the Guild takes uh, from each artwork sale is, is lower than it would be in a commercial space because, you know, we're not, we're not trying to make a profit off of this. We're trying to present the work, have people buy it, have people take it home and enjoy it, and make sure the artists that we represent get the highest percentage of sales possible. Right. Well, Gene, I think this is a, a, an auspicious uh, moment. It certainly is a signal that the fall is here, thank goodness, because <laughs> it was not a fun summer. And, um, and before I move on to um, uh, our, our, the, the focus of the rest of our show being the film festival coming up, I'm going to take a moment to just um, share my thoughts about what's going on nationally, which is really a crime, basically, coming out of the White House and a very, very unfortunate uh, setting of people against each other that was just totally unnecessary. I'll get to that in a minute. Give us the time, place, and um, uh, details again for Saturday. Uh, Friday night, uh, the 29th, it, it's going to be 4 to 7 p.m. Oh, it's Friday. I'm sorry. Friday night. Yep, no problem. Uh, so hopefully if people work downtown, you get off of work, maybe come by a little bit early, have a glass of champagne, look at some art. So, yeah, Friday, 4 to 7 p.m., Canal Place Mall, right there on Canal Street and Decatur. We all know it. We all enjoy it. Um, and as we said, 4 to 7 artwork artist demonstrations, champagne, snacks, and a good time for everybody. What, what a great idea, that timing, to put it at the end of the business day on Friday downtown. Yeah, start Perfect. the weekend right. Thank you, Gene, for doing it and for all that you do in general for the community here. So y'all get out for the opening of that, um, the, new, the new home of the Louisiana Craft Guild. See you there. You, See you there, Gene. Okay. All right, so I'm just going to take a minute on this because, uh, I, you know, I, what can I add to, uh, as I said in our newsletter, I don't really need to add anything to LeBron James basically calling the president a bum. I mean, it's, it's so unfortunate that we have a situation where there's no pejorative 
that is out of range for uh, the, the man who presently occupies the White House. It's so sad. It's just plain cold sad for everybody. And um, to, to ask people to boycott, you know, I, I'm not a great lover of football, y'all. I have to tell you, I don't like people bashing their heads in. You know, it, to me, it's a little close to the old gladiators. At least they're not getting killed, but they're getting slow deaths, many of the people who, who, who play that game. So uh, you know, it's not that I'm such a big sports fan, but, but every, most people are. And, and to, to, to set folks against our players and our teams and the owners, it is sick. He's just plain sick. Now, I understand the patriotism that's behind the feelings of some of the folks who don't recall or ever understood what our amendments are all about. The amendments were developed by guys who created this country through protest against the policies of the British. Come on. And you don't realize how important the freedom of speech is. And quite frankly, my last comment on this, um, just because I, I, I just don't want to be repetitive with everything else that's going on, and I think it's really unfortunate that this is such a dominant conversation right now, I can't think of too many ways to protest social injustice than kneeling during the anthem. What is so wrong about that? I don't get it. I just don't get it. So I, I, I just, I apologize to, the, to everybody who's involved on either side because it's really, it's not a fight that we should be having. We have too many other things to deal with that are really serious. You know, all my people in the room, anybody who wants to comment on this before the end of the show, be my guest. It's not that I, I, I don't want to have a dialogue about it. It's just that I read so much about it. I've seen so much about it. And I just think it's like half the news show tonight. I always watch the news before I come over here because I want to make sure that there isn't something really important going on. The first 15 minutes of the local news was all about this. And that is just, again, just plain cold sick. Okay. Having said that, I want to introduce Julie Shipley, who is my partner in, let's see, what's the opposite of crime? <laughs> Good things. She works with me on these shows. She helps me put the newsletters that many of you get. And if you don't get a newsletter and you want one, why don't you send Julie Shipley an email? Crosstowncompass <laughs> at gmail.com. That, that's my cost. That's my cost for um, uh, uh, Julie. And I should just be paying her instead of there being a charge, but she's getting paid. Yeah, yeah. Julie Shipley uh, works for me in, uh, in putting our newsletter together and, and putting our shows together. She also works for the film festival, so she's much more informed about the festival than I am. So I thought I'd ask her to participate in the show today as a co-host and help me with the interviews with our folks from the film festival, on the one hand, and um, two people who are directors, writers, producers, of films that are being shown here. And one's a woman and one's an African-American. If that isn't representative of what this particular <laughs> festival is all about, I don't know what is because that's a real important thing. So let me start by um, introducing the person who's responsible for the whole uh, event. And I'm trying to line it because I don't want to get the names wrong. Fallon Young is the executive director of the New Orleans Film Society. The film festival is coming up on dates. October 11th through 19th. 
October 11th through 19th. And, you know, you just, I wish I could, for just one year, not do anything else, but just go to what, to one film after another. But, uh, you know, it's October. You've got so much going on. Tell me, Fallon, what's so special about this festival this year? Yeah, we have over 200 uh, films this year. and 200? Over 200. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and I'm very proud to report that it's the most diverse year in the New Orleans Film Festival's 28-year history. It's our 28th festival. 54% of films this year are helmed by women and gender nonconforming filmmakers and 45% by filmmakers of color. That is really impressive. Now, is that something you set out to do? I mean, in you know, there's some design in that, at least in um, you know, as an organization, being you know, having goals around it. We certainly um, look to create a diverse and inclusive environment for filmmaking. But the f the process is that all of these films are films are screened by a number of screeners um, who are themselves a, a diverse group of people. And uh, the films are watched three times, and once uh, we've deemed a film excellent enough for inclusion, then it becomes a little thoughtful about, is this uh, resonant in our community? You know, how do these films fit together as a program? Um, but really, excellence is determined above all else, and then we're very fortunate to have um, such a great pool of work to choose from by diverse filmmakers. And, and Clint Bowie, who is the artistic director for the Film Society, is also with, also with us. So, Clint, do you want to chime in on that and ha how you were involved in the selection process? Sure. So, I mean, ultimately, that's my job, the curatorial aspect of the festival, ensuring that we have a really solid lineup and, um, you know, ensuring that multiple perspectives are represented is part of the selection process. Um, I think... Um, to say that we're only looking for the cream of the crop or the best films out there is doing a disservice to the work that we do because there are a ton of good films out there. If we were looking only for the good films out there, we would be left with over a thousand film submissions every year and we don't have enough screening slots to program that many. So there is more thought put into you know, what stories do we want to get behind and what films do we um, you know, want to support through this kind of platform. And um, certainly, you know, certainly diversity is part of that, ensuring that all different um, backgrounds of filmmakers and people behind the camera, making sure that um, there's representation there. And that's also part of, um, you know, what our organization does before we even get those submissions. So we are really investing in, um, you know, diverse makers. We're really doing as much outreach as we can to, um, you know, communities of color, to, um, you know, organizations, partners, uh, particularly in the South, but all over the country for that matter, to ensure that the submissions that we do get are more representative both of our community and of, you know, the different um, perspectives and backgrounds of people who enjoy watching movies. So. And I would have to say that, thank goodness, I think that it's probably an easier job than it might have been about 10, 20 years ago because for various reasons, and I'm curious to know what they are, we do have a lot more diverse people involved in the production, the writing, and the direction of film. So we have two filmmakers in-house. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? And, and, and you tell me um, how, how it is that we now have such a, a much more representative, um, so to speak, cast of characters that are um, uh, actually presenting film productions. So introduce yourselves first of all. Sure. Hi, I'm Maggie Hadley-West. 
And I actually think that one of the reasons that there are so many people making films is because it's so accessible. It's a lot easier to make films. You know, I've been making movies a long time, and it's gotten easier. You know, it's a lot more affordable for just about anybody. Almost anybody can, you know, pick up, you know, some kind of a device and make a movie. A, at least a third of my film was shot on my iPhone. Wow, that's really interesting because it gives us all a ch the uh, thought that maybe we could actually produce something. But uh, it takes more than an iPhone. It really does take the, the, um, some skill in um, being able to shoot and then, well, first of all, prepare the story. Think about what, how you're going to characterize your story. Um, and then think about the editing that's going to happen. And the editing is, uh, is really the tough part in a way. Our second filmmaker. Uh, my name is Jonathan Isaac Jackson, and I am a local filmmaker. Are you? Um, yeah, New Orleans Film Festival has done a great job of um, providing opportunities for diverse filmmakers, especially filmmakers of color. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of Emergent Voices, and uh, which is a program designed for um, uh, filmmakers of color. Um, and just in sitting back and watching other films, um, it's good to, to be able to see, and even with the film festival itself, um, to, to be able to see and meet other filmmakers that um, look like me and are trying to tell the same type of stories that I'm trying to tell. So, Jonathan, how do we call you? John, Jonathan, Isaac? It's all good. Huh? <laughs> it's all good. You can call me John. John, John. John. Okay. Um, so uh, give me just a little bit of a... Um, I always like to scope out people's history a little bit because I think a lot of people in our audience are folks who are creative and would like to pursue doing more creative pursuits than maybe they're doing. And I want them to understand that it's doable. Um. <laughs> Not easy. I didn't say it was easy. Yeah. But doable. Uh, I think it, re it requires a, a, a lot of work. Um, like I say, it is a feeling that you are starting from behind no matter what, if you're a filmmaker of color, at least uh, from my perspective. So it, it's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of uh, <laughs> psychological trickery to make you keep wanting to do it. Um, psychological trickery. Yeah, I have to psych myself into doing this every morning. Yeah, um, I, I kind of know what you mean. <laughs> it's something that, it's something that, that, that I want to do. It's something that I love to do. But, um, you know, just like everybody else, I have a, a job. So, you know, part of my part of my day is actually working. You have on a, a full time job. job? I have a full time job. Ouch. That in news at that. WDSU. <laughs> my alma mater. I know. Did you know? <laughs> I read. Do you know the whole story? <laughs> I don't. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> but uh yeah, and working in news you understand that, you know, I have a Are you are you, you shoot or you're a reporter? Uh production. Production working in, in the studio. Okay. Um, but yeah, so it's it's literally um taking off days and taking time when you're not working to work on your craft. And it's constantly working on your crap. And then the idea that, that you might, you know, you might see somebody else that is not of color that, that might be making the same type of film with a lot more money than you have. So you have to, like I say, I at least have to trick myself into doing it. And um, in the last couple of years, I've been definitely trying to, 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 to build um, not necessarily a community, a community, but some some sort of camaraderie around uh, filmmakers of color just trying to make sure we, you know, keep psyching ourselves up to do it because it's easy to quit. Um, so that's like the toughest thing, but uh, I will say that it is, it's a lot better than it was, you know, four years ago. Um, Even four years ago. Right. So, Ooh. so you know, we still have some ways to go, but um, 
like I say, it's, it's definitely getting there. It's definitely getting to a better place, at least from my perspective. Mm-hmm. So um, what struck me as interesting about the film that you have in this festival, mm-hmm. uh, uh, two, Darker. okay, <laughs> but the one that I looked at, Darker. Uh, uh, what's the name of it again? Darker. It's Darker. Huh? Darker. Darker. Are you sure that's the one I watched? Okay. <laughs> I didn't remember the name of it, but I, I was fascinated by it because if I had to have guessed who the director of it was, I would have guessed a French filmmaker <laughs> from kind of the early experimental days of French film. It is an experimental film. It is not, you know, bubblegum. Uh, it, it's not... Um, um, uh, big scary creatures which mm-hmm. is the kind of movie I don't go to I don't go to anything that has a lot of scary creatures or violence um, <laughs> and it's uh, uh, edgy just plain cold edgy so tell me a little bit about how you came to make that kind of a film alright so uh, I guess what kind of happened is it was written to be a feature and uh, I have a house and I have a room that I didn't know what to do with, so I just decided I was going to like make a film in that room. So uh, in trying to do research, uh, what type of film could I make in a room, I wanted to make a kidnapping film. And uh, I was obsessed with Patty Hearst at the time. So what Darker is, is uh, it's essentially um, a film, like a, a new version of, of the Patty Hearst story that uh, the older African Americans that I talk to believe, which is, you know, Patty Hearst was behind. What if Patty Hearst was behind the whole thing? So um, we tried to go at it from a feature perspective, but we knew it probably wouldn't happen, so we shot a, a short um, version of it. Um, but yeah, essentially, you pack a lot that. into that short short version. I mean, <laughs> I think it comes off as a feature film. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it's it's essentially the uh, you know we we tried to take the best parts of the story um, and make a short version of it. I guess kind of like a like a, a, a glorified trailer. Essentially, and uh, we actually shot it. That's not fair. <laughs> we that's shot not, it. No, that's really not definitely a fair characterization of it at all. Mm-hmm. Jilly, what? It's definitely more substantial than just a trailer. We um, but yeah, we actually shot it twice. Um, because uh, we wanted to make sure. Oh, the other thing, by the way, is we weren't expecting Trump to win, and we shot the film in December. So the film was written last summer, and then Trump won. So I had to like rewrite it without necessarily making it a big, big Trump thing. But it, it, I mean, essentially it's, it's the whole basis of it is it's uh, white privilege and the black power or Black Lives Matter movement. That's what it's essentially about. Yeah, it's interesting that you said, okay, <laughs> so it's that, it's about that, but in a very abstract, mm-hmm. existential way because it, it, it's not um, uh, just a straight out narrative film. Right. You know, you, you really kind of have to, pay attention to understand what's happening mm-hmm. as with any um, more experimental kind of film. And, and, and my husband is an artist and, and one of the things he always says about good art is that it's not obvious. It's ambiguous. Especially in the, in the creative fictional uh, version of things. Now, we also have us, with us a filmmaker who um, Maggie Hadley Hadley West. Hadley West, who um, has done a documentary. Now, with the documentary, you have a little bit um, of a responsibility to the facts of something. Yes, I do. And yet you can work with that 
and around that and, 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 and interpret it and, and present it in a way, again, that um, f flexes people's way of thinking about things. Tell me about what you were trying to accomplish with that. Well, I, I actually often think of myself as a propagandist and <laughs> that I'm, you know, I have an agenda and I want to put it out there in a way that convinces people, but I want to do it in a way that's true and not um, manipulative. And so Sick to Death is um, partially my story based on my story of it taking 30 years for me to be diagnosed with thyroid disease and then um, discover Which, by the way, we share. Yeah. Go ahead. And, and then coming back to New Orleans and realizing but just by seeing this medical book that I should have been diagnosed as a child and that all of the medical information preexisted. And I was really good with that. You know, I was, like, pissed, but it was manageable. But when I realized that there were hundreds of millions of people just like me, well, that tapped into the social justice advocate in me, and I was like, okay, this is a movie. And so, but to speak to exactly what you're saying, I, one of the things that I did in the film was I used statistics, facts as a character in the film to build a case around um, what I consider to be um, negligence and medical corruption, often, um, you know, perpetuated by the pharmaceuticals. It's actually uh, healthcare is probably one of the areas other than education and maybe job opportunities in general um, that is um, most rife with social injustice. And, Absolutely. Um, and, and basically with um, uh, the um, uh, in, um, what's the word, the empowerment of the medical practitioners to control that universe according to their needs and preferences and not according to the needs of the patients, the people. Yeah, the patients are almost negligent, negligible right now. Yeah, and it's not just, and it's not just the doctors either. It's the institutions. It's the way that the doctors are being taught. And even the schools are funded by the pharmaceuticals. So uh, what do you mean? I didn't know that. A lot of the medical schools get funding from the pharmaceuticals. And that affects the curriculum. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Teaching. That's a horrifying thought. I didn't it's know really that. terrible. It's really, really awful. And so, you know, um, you take something like thyroid disease, which is one of the most common autoimmune diseases, and people aren't being diagnosed. It should be so simple. I actually diagnose people all day, every day. It's super easy. And every single person that's worked on my film can do the same thing. But a doctor, your average doctor can't do it anymore because they don't recognize very simple signs and symptoms. We, we have enough time for me to pause and ask you how you do that because I can't resist asking, being a person with thyroid. And I'm, I'm just one of those synthroid people. I can tell you a simple thing, though. You know, when if somebody's eyebrows don't grow very much on the outside of them, that's called Hertog sign. That's a sign that your thyroid isn't working. If somebody has actually very fine, thin hair, that's often a sign that your thyroid isn't working properly. People often have a horizontal line on their neck. That's a sign that their thyroid isn't working. There's something called um, shortened fifth digit, which is if your littlest finger is below the line of the next finger, 
that means your um, thyroid wasn't talking to your growth hormone when you were growing up. I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of them that are very, very obvious. And then if you, if a doctor was to consider the possibility of, oh, I don't know, listening to a patient, hearing their symptoms, or, you know, like one of the things that I said literally for decades was that my body temperature changed all the time and that it would be, it would be low and I would feel feverish. Well, your thyroid is your body's thermostat. I never had a doctor say to me, there's something wrong with your thyroid. Never. Not until it swung so high into um, hyperthyroidism that I was in a really dangerous place. I've been there, and I, I know what you mean. And um, in general, uh, it's it's a the whole practice of medicine is so horrifying. I'd say maybe two out of all the doctors I've seen in my um, several decades <laughs> of life, actually, I would call good diagnosticians. They're just not necessarily on the case. No, they don't diagnose anymore. And as um, Dr. Charles Mary says in my film. Young doctors don't have fun anymore because they don't cure people. Wow, that is really an indicting statement. It really is, and it's true. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I'm a, I, I take, I, I um, take a heavy dose of the cable news shows at night lately. It's um, a part knowing that I'm watching Incredible History. Uh, it's in part. It started out as just being like a great big soap opera before it got damn serious. And um, and then it became, you know, just um, appalling, and you just couldn't turn your eyes away, sort of from, like from the bad car scene. accident. Yeah, and so, um, and but the preponderance of commercials on television. There are two kinds of commercials that are driving me nuts right now. Um, one is the uh, car commercials, which promote speeding, and I'm I'm convinced that they have contributed to a higher accident rate in this country. BMW and Jaguar and Mercedes, you should be damned ashamed of yourselves with those unbelievably stupid ads that have cars racing around like they're going 200 miles an hour. And, and who in hell could go 200 miles an hour without putting lives at risk? And I, I, it makes me think about that, that young couple that I think they were driving on Chapitulis and he was obviously showing off for his date and he just killed him, killed her. And, and, and I know that he was, you know, trying to show like he's one of the guys on Noscaria. So that's one that really drives me crazy. And the other one are the pharmaceutical ads. Mm -hmm. You know, let's see now. Lyric, I can call the names. That's horrible. It really the is. Mesothelioma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all those, uh, they're so dominant. In their, not to mention, of course, the lobbying that they're doing in Washington, which is frightening, too. And of course, we could talk for the rest of the show about this. But let me come back to the guys who put this whole festival together. In addition to the work by these two New Orleans um, creatives who are here with us, which I'm so happy to see. Again, so much New Orleans work being shown, which wasn't true in the very beginning. Um, tell me more about your whole menu and palette of work that you're showing this time. Sure, sure. Um, one of the things I'm really excited about this year is that with the generous support of the Hellas Foundation, we have 12 free films in the festival. Uh, we also have a community partnership program that distributes hundreds of free tickets in the community. And of those 12 films that are free, a couple that I thought were really interesting that I'm excited about are um, Small Town Rage, which looks at the history of ACT UP in Shreveport, Louisiana. 
uh, and also Nothing Without Us that looks at women in the fight against HIV and AIDS and their, their roles and relationships. Um, and then, you know, I think maybe Clint could talk a little bit about our newest strand of the festival, which is called Changemakers, and it's a way to formalize um, a lot of strong work that we have been receiving that is about, um, about creating change in, in communities and highlights the role of the filmmaker uh, as, as a change agent. Um, sure. Um, this is the first year that we've, um, you know, pulled these films together in a designated, what we call a sidebar, which is a way to um, um, have films that are like-minded in a certain way and allow it allows audiences to have a deeper dive in a certain uh, genre of film. So these films are all about advocacy or advocates themselves or about um, activists, um, people who are, who are enacting change, people who, stories of people in the past like Dolores Huerta who was um, really instrumental in fighting for you know communities that she was part of. Um, there are two films in particular that I wanted to call out um, that are very New Orleans specific. One is called Acorn and the Firestorm and the other is called The Organizer and both of them look at uh, Acorn and the work that you know Wade Rathke has done um, with community organizing and um, political activism. And yeah, there's another um, uh, very tragic and sad story on the national level that um, they sure. were victimized. For when sure. Acorn, when I first came to New Orleans um, in the 70s, uh, there was really only one activist organization at that time, at that point in history, and it was Acorn. Mm -hmm. And they fought for the neighborhoods of the city, and they they really fought for many of the major issues that we're, we deal with. Yeah, and, and Acorn and the Firestorm is a documentary that really looks at um, what happened with that organization. Um, you know, it was a, about 15 years ago when, um, you know, the right-wing, you know, some right-wing activists actually basically took down that organization in a major way, and it looks at that year or two-year period specifically. And then The Organizer is a documentary film that squarely focuses on um, Wade and the, you know, his entire career as being a, a community activist. Well, what, what actually, where is he these days? Um, I think he's still around, actually. I mean, you know, he's got uh, Fairgrounds is, um, you know, uh, you know, there are two Right, coffee right, shops right, here yeah. that are um, up just one now, is that right? That are, um, you know, affiliated with um, Acorn and the work that they're doing. Acorn International, I think, that um, uses free trade coffee yeah, from yeah. some of the work that they're doing internationally. And um, But, I mean, you know, he's still out there actively involved in some of the work that Acorn International specifically does, I believe. Um, but, you know, there's some other films in this in this program as well of Changemakers. One is a series of short films um, uh, called collectively Our 100 Days. And these films are made by seven filmmakers of color who are making films, documentary films, about experiences uh, of communities, marginalized communities, and their experiences during the first 100 days of the Trump administration. So these you know, seven films are made by people of these communities that are experiencing these things. And that's really important for, for us to um, ensure that the stories that are being told about certain communities have some kind of insight and um, uh, involvement from the people who are actually part of the stories that they're telling. So, you know, when we're looking at films, when we're, when we're making decisions about the kinds of stories that we want to tell, we're very interested to know, you know, who is behind these stories, who is telling the story, 
Um, and that's a, you know, that's a question that we talk about a lot, like who has the right to tell a specific story? Um, you know, who did you work with to tell this story? If you are a straight white man telling a story about um, you know, queer black women, is that your story to tell? And if you are telling it, how did you go about telling it? Who did you involve in that process of telling the story? So those are, you know, all things that we're really interested in. With. That uh, that brings up, uh, um, again, uh, when I was first looking at your film, John, for the first uh, five minutes or so, I thought that it was produced by a woman. <laughs> <laughs> right? And then, and then um, I kind of like, you know, pay a little closer attention to what Julie gave me to look at and said, oh, wait, it was done by a man? And then initially I was thinking it was a white man. And then I was thinking, what? <laughs> I, I, I mean, tell me, you, you, took, you wrote this, this piece from a perspective that I um, identified as from a, a feminine um, uh, point of view. So, um, How'd you do that? <laughs> He's not exactly feminine, guys. I'm sitting across from him. He's a hunk. So I had a. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. I had a couple of. Um, so I wrote it with uh, a friend of mine, Owen, who used to work at the uh, festival, and um, you know one of the things that I wanted to do is uh, we wanted to try to do, and I also had a friend, Sarah, uh, who is a, a white female who I uh, consulted with um, throughout the process. Um, but yeah, one thing I wanted to do is I wanted to. I wanted to have that 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 lead who was gay, that black male lead who was gay, um, and I wanted to have him up against um, a woman. And the whole idea of it was about um, fighting white male privilege. So, the perspective of it that I was trying to go for, which hopefully I hope people see it like that, is um, I don't want her. She's essentially the uh, antagonist. Um, well, in the last version, she's almost the protagonist, but. Um, I didn't want her to be a villain, and that's something that me and Owen like fought about, because um, he kind of was writing it out to be like straight villain when she gets him in his room and she has this conversation. But I didn't want her to be a villain. I wanted her to be somebody that was um, that had so much empathy for what was going on in the political climate that she had to make a change, and she felt that um, the only way for um, it to work was to create somebody that uh, would be a total enemy of a of a white male which she feels at that point is a black gay male. But, uh, but also the, uh, another way that I perceived it was um, the danger of somebody who could be a total do-gooder, mm -hmm. right, actually uh, functioning in a way without really understanding it that is, would be in a um, much more uh, nuanced as to the motivation, and there could be there could be evil strands, mm -hmm. or um, ch uh, let's just call it challenging strands in that person's way of relating to the world, despite their good intentions. Did I is, did I misinterpret that, or that's how I came out of it? That's I, I, the thing about me as a filmmaker. What I did when I tried to write it is, um, and, and keep in mind, there's a whole lot more story to it. But yeah, essentially, she's the daughter of. Uh, <laughs> Her name is Willa Duke. As a David. Right. So we don't say it, but that's kind of like the idea. Um, and her dad is famous. He's a senator. It takes place in the future. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's her idea of, of, of not accepting the way that society is and trying to change it. 
but she feels that there's no way to change it except through violence. She's at that point. Once again, going back to, to what I was looking at, I was looking at the difference between the Weather Underground and, and the Black uh, Panther movement. So, you know, it was it was about protecting Black Panthers, were about protecting the community. Weather Underground was like, they're not going to get it unless we start bombing stuff. And like I said, from my perspective, it's, it's an idea of, of white privilege and a black power movement. So that's who I wanted Willa to be, but I don't want her to be a villain. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, I actually knew uh, people in, in the Weather Underground. Okay. So I, I was in school in the 60s, 60 mm -hmm. to 65, and I was involved with the anti-Vietnam movement. And um, one of my friends was in, in the uh, in the was a weatherman. He started out as a civil rights worker in mm -hmm. the South. And and you know I was uh, I was raised in the Bronx in the South Bronx in a very um, multi-dimensional <laughs> community. Uh, but I, I resisted the idea of me, little white girl, going south to, you know, rescue the black community. I just didn't – I couldn't tell you that I really had it very well thought out, but I just wasn't comfortable with that. Right. And this guy, um, Eric Mann was his name. Mm -hmm. What the hell? And, um, you know, he goes off, and I'm saying, oh, yeah, he's a hero. He's going south. He's going to do the good thing. And then he turns out to be a weatherman who's who's takes on this notion of – Violence as mm -hmm. being an okay way to um, express protest, and, and he wasn't really a very nice guy. Who, by the way, walked out on his wife six months after she uh, bore his baby. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's it's nothing's straightforward. Um, I, I want to get Julie into this conversation because I asked her to be here to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And and what I'm interested to hear from you, Julian, is the the people who go to the film festival. You are at the door. We all pass you on our way in, you or the people that you work with. And I'm curious to know about, I'm, I, I'm sure that audience has changed dramatically, and not just because of the content of the films that you're showing, which are more socially um, engaging, but um, tell me about who goes and why, and, and I, I want to make sure that folks in this audience that are listening to my show, that's a very mixed group of people out there, go also. Well, and I think that uh, the crowd that we see at the film festival is very diverse. I mean, we've got folks of all ages. You know, we have a lot of college kids that are studying film. You know, the different, you know, Loyola, you know, they both have really great film programs. So we have some young folks that get involved. You know, we, we show a lot of um, what we call our spotlight films, which are kind of like award season babies, you know. Like, we know these are going to be the hot films when it comes to award season time, and I think there's definitely um, some folks there, you know, that that's their films. That's what they like to see, you know. But we have such a variety of Louisiana films that I think we attract a lot of folks from the city and from the state itself. And then, you know, we also have a huge contingency of filmmakers that come from all over the country. I don't know if we have any international filmmakers this year. Clint could oh, for sure. speak to that. Yeah. But, yeah, we usually do have a few international folks in there as well. So. Um, you know, and I, there's a lovely father and daughter duo that's been coming every single year for four or five years. They're from Tennessee, and they they just feel a special connection to our festival, and they keep coming back, you know. So, um, we, you know, we definitely try to, you know, book films that I think are going to bring in that local audience. But, of course, you know, we're dealing with filmmakers that come from everywhere, so we really want to appeal to everyone across the board, and I feel like we do. And there's kind of a whole sort of party context to this as well. It's oh. This is not straight. <laughs> I mean, this is New Orleans, for God's sake, yeah. so we can't do anything without a bit yeah, of a yeah. party. So 
uh, gives me a little bit of a sense of the, the fun times around. Um, who wants to talk about that? All yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, so um, this year one of the exciting things that happened is that Movie Maker named us one of the top 25 coolest film festivals in the world. Bravo! Yeah, that's exciting. And one of the things they specifically mentioned is that we set the bar for U.S. after parties, so we knew that we had to really do it this year. Mm. We really had to go big. So um, one of the really fun parties I think is going to be Saturday night. We're going to be at Mandeville Wharf, which is... Which Saturday night? What's the date? That's Saturday the 14th. Um, and at that party, we Damn, are gonna, I'm going to be out of town. Oh, no. We're going to have the world premiere of Tropical Punch, which is a um, high-octane uh, dance documentary music video about the queen diva herself, Big Frida. So that's really exciting to be able to premiere that in a party context and give people a little taste of New Orleans bounce music. And then we also have just a really a, a great range of parties for any kind of vibe. You know, the festival opens with an opening night party where we'll be on the rooftop of the um, of the Four Winds, and there will be some synchronized swimmers and some dancing and a really um, <laughs> glitzy evening with, with the lights of New Orleans in the background. But then we also have parties at um, the Art Garage and more casual venues and opportunities to meet and hang out with the best of Hollywood South, which... Um, you know, all the filmmakers who are in town, typically we have about 400 filmmakers Whoa. in the mix. So really an opportunity to meet the creative visionaries behind the work that you're seeing all week long. What would you say to somebody in our audience who is an aspiring um, filmmaker? How can the film festival um, be relevant to that person? Well, I mean, maybe Jonathan could speak to this too from, I mean, your experience. But I think that, I mean, Yes, these parties are fun. They celebrate the craft and they celebrate the festival. But I think that what they're also really amazing at is making connections happen. Mm. Um, and that's something that for years we, we did rely on, um, you know, the parties and receptions and networking events to do to, to help um, organically connect, you know, up-and-coming filmmakers or established filmmakers with each other, with audiences, with the industry presence. And um, a couple years ago, we, we really decided that we, you know, more work needed to be done in that regard to help facilitate some of those connections. So we started something that we call the Industry Exchange, and that takes place for a period of several hours, usually on um, Saturday morning of the festival. And we make an attempt to connect uh, filmmakers with industry leaders, with people who can, you know, open doors with um, you know, offer resources, opportunities, whether it's, you know, distribution opportunities or just information about the different um, resources that are out there for filmmakers. You know, because we are not a, um, because we're not New York and L.A., those, those individuals who really make those decisions happen are not always here. So to be able to provide, even if it's a 10-minute one-on-one FaceTime opportunity, that's become increasingly important for our festival. And um, I think, Jonathan, you've taken part in some of these um, you know, some of these meetings that we've helped facilitate before. And sometimes, yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, it's just an opportunity to have a conversation. Sometimes, you know, we've seen, um, you know, incredible things come of these meetings that take place. But, yeah, what's your experience been like with that, John? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, other than the New Orleans Film Fest, I wouldn't have an opportunity to meet any of these people or, or talk to any of these people. And um, as far as the, the, the parties or the lounges, I'll say, you know, that's where I met Owen. Yeah. So, um, and, and Owen is a good friend of mine. We've worked on two films. Um, he's 
going to be a director, and I'm probably going to end up working for him. So that's why I maintain a relationship. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great experience for um, up-and-coming filmmakers. Um, there's actually other filmmakers that I've met there, too. Um, Ian, I met Ian there, Nicole, um, people who know people who I meet there. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's even if you're not necessarily in it, it's still something that's, that's good to be a part of. And um, it's still New Orleans. It's not L.A. It's not New York. So it's always a good place to, 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 to meet people who have the same dreams and the same aspirations as you. So it's always good to, to be in that surrounding. So that's probably the best thing about it, at least to me. Yeah, and another thing I think that's special about the festival is that, yes, to have to fully experience it, you need a pass. Like, that's how you get behind the door sometimes into some of the more exclusive parties and events. But you can also just show up as an attendee and connect with people who are – you know, nationally important and relevant and or just connect with other people who love cinema and who are interested in making movies. Let's break that down a little bit because you do have a lot of different ways that somebody mm-hmm. can be a part of uh, of this. So, um, you know, as you said, you can just buy a ticket, go to a film, mm-hmm. but you can also be a member. And then when you're a member, the, one of the cool things about being a member for me, even though I don't get to go to a lot of them, are the free films during the course of the year that you screenings that you know the film industry wants to know how you feel about them so they put them out there and um, if you're a member you get the notices you can go to the Britannia or the um, the uh, which the broad theater uh, the broad or don't you still do some in Saint okay um, so uh, it, this is a very important um, uh, opportunity as, of the membership and then you have those levels of membership that really uh, so g- give me some of those different portals, so to speak. Yeah, there are a lot of ways to plug in. So uh, New Orleans Film Society members, as you mentioned, have year-round have year round benefits of preview screenings and classics at the Britannia and other uh, films that we, we seek to bring to our membership throughout the year. And if you're a member, you also get a discount on tickets and passes. So in terms of passes, there are a range of options. So as Clint mentioned, the all-access pass gets you into a party every day of the festival, so nine parties. Um, the VIP That lounge, might cost a few pennies. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, 300. Not as many as you would think. Not as many not as many you would pennies. think. Yeah. <laughs> Considering the value there. Considering, yeah. And there's, you know, there's food and cocktails and lots of, um, of mixing and networking, and you also can get into uh, special presentations with Academy, uh, you know, award-nominated actresses like... Gabby Sidibe and Patricia Clarkson this year, which is really exciting. Uh, we also have, pe- for people who just aren't party animals, we have an all-film pass. We have a six-film pass. And then people who are just weekend warriors, we've got that weekender pass that gets you into films and, and parties just over opening weekend. So there's a lot of different options for people. All to right. So that means we got to go to some old website yes. and <laughs> got to scroll through all this. So where do folks go to learn more about this? They go to neworleansfilmfestival.org to find all of this information about past. Will packs. NOFS get you there too or not? No, just neworleansfilmfestival.org New okay. or neworleansfilmsociety.org. They go to the same website. Mm-hmm. And um, does that also have, do you have the schedule now? Is the schedule out and The online? schedule is released. I better take a look at that because I am going to miss out. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to the memorial for my, my last living aunt um, uh, in uh, uh, Vero Beach. So 
Well, the important things to know, right, in terms of timing are, is that the schedule is now out and members and pass holders can reserve their their tickets and their seats to everything they want to see oh, right now. Oh, great. So you don't have to worry about getting online and not getting a seat. So they're, they're, you can go online and reserve if you're a member or a pass holder. And then on October 2nd, tickets go on sale to the general public. So if you're a member or a pass holder, you get a first look at what's going on and get to reserve your seats for everything you want to do exceptional way of doing things, I must say. We have um, a little bit of time left, and I haven't heard enough from Maggie or actually from my partner here, my shy um, uh, co-anchor for this segment of the show. Um, So I want to hear from both of you. Uh, I I, I talked to Jonathan for a second about how he jumped into things and um, moved along a little bit. Maggie, I didn't ask you that question. Okay. Well, I started in – I started shooting in 1993 – I picked up a Super 8 camera, and I um, started shooting men that harassed me in public in New York City. And that became my first film. So for me, film Construction workers. No, not necessarily. It was um, Wall Street guys. It was Wall Street. Yeah, it was all all kinds of people. They they eat a little too much steak. They do. They pump too much testosterone during the day. It's true. And then they become the president. And the <laughs> and that movie was called War Zone, and that was also that I made a short film, and then I made a feature documentary. But my work has always been um, propelled by activism. And actually, I'd like to respond to something that Clint was talking to. My second feature documentary um, is about a young hip hop artist named Half a Mill from the Projects. And one of the things that I said to Half is, I'm going to get a hard, I'm going to be given a hard time as a white woman who's making a film about a black man. And he was really angry about that. And he said, "Um, I don't see anybody else here, Maggie. You're the only person I see in this neighborhood that's interested in my story. So from my perspective, it's one artist telling the story of another artist which I really appreciated. And at the same time, because I am an activist first and a filmmaker second, I um, I do feel like it's really important to have all kinds of different voices telling stories and telling different perspectives. And also regarding what, <laughs> what John had to say about sort of feeling like he's behind, um, you know, behind the game, I feel the same way as a woman. It's just really difficult to be a filmmaker unless you are a white man coming out of something like NYU. It's it's a it's a slog. And so anybody that picks it up, even though it's easier to do these days, is pretty, pretty brave. You know, when I got out of college, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a film editor in particular. And um, I had seen some really, you know, in New York, you just get to see the uh, incredible films back then in the 60s. And. Um, I chickened out. I just, I, I just heard how few women um, could break through, and uh, you know, I worked on a couple independent film projects and um, observed a pretty challenging situation for a woman. And I just said, oh. and then I just retreated to the PR world that I've been in ever since, really, and advocacy also. So yeah, it's. But um, I think the the key word um, uh, then is courage, isn't it? Absolutely. Or chutzpah. You just have to you have to stay in there, and you have to stay in the game. And I heard a long time ago that only one percent of films get made, and Oof. that 
that actually, I find that consoling. You know, I've just finished my fifth film, and hopefully my last, because it is so damn hard. Especially when you think about how many crap films are out there. Sometimes exactly. Sometimes crap films exactly. and say, how the hell did they get that made? Same. You just can't, you can't, you just can't imagine. Right, and, of, and the independent filmmakers, if they had had a tenth, or a 20th or a 50th of that budget, it would have, like, you know, taken us over the finish line in a lot less time. Let me hear from both, all of you, all four, all five. Um, and let me get my pencil out. And I want to hear your recommendations for which films are, like, um, don't miss. Where's my – anybody got a film, a pen handy? This is really important to me. Because there's too, it's hard to choose between all of them. So you really have to have some kind of, you know, recommendations from people. And I'm really interested to hear. Uh-oh, I see a couple heads shaking like they, they have no clue what's being <laughs> what's in the program. Well, let me start with the uh, film festival people. What are your favorites? You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't like <coughs> I, to I will single say out individual too. films. But I will say that something I try to tell people when they're asking me for a, or for a recommendation is to find a shorts program and just go see it. I think people... You know, they get caught up in some of the some of those prestige titles. We are showing some really great films that are going to get a lot of awards attention. They'll probably be coming to theaters here within the next within the next couple of months, and those are exciting to have at the festival. I think they build a lot of buzz. They get people excited about independent cinema. If you call some of those films independent cinema, but I mean, what I would really encourage people to do is seek out a shorts block. I mean, there's some really, oh, a, a really incredible short, short films, some short, like shorts. a shorts film program or a shorts block. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's everything from animated short films to experimental short films to social activism, documentaries. There's just a ton of incredible short films, and you can't go wrong. By you the way, we've been talking program. throughout this whole program about fairly serious stuff, and I, I, I can't end my day without watching the comedians to just get a a little bit of a break because it's all the news nationally is just so horrific. So um, is there anything funny and fun? There is. There's a ton (laughs) of stuff that's funny. Um, I mean, everything from, you know, a a narrative uh, feature film, um, you know, from a French director called Ombrasse Moi. It's a, it's a French lesbian comedy and it's, it's delightful. It's fun. It goes down easy. It's, you know, it's fun cinema. It's like you know? the two girls on uh, Seth um, Seth's show that he always uh, jokes that Seth can't tell. Yeah, that that one too is one of the free films that's um, you know free for everyone Which thanks to the Hellas Foundation. Embrace moi. Yeah. Okay. Um, your favorite? I I also it's difficult to pick a favorite. I'm most excited about Louisiana Shorts because that's the moment when we get to see our local filmmakers shine and. You know, their films connect with an audience, and it has a really strong, um, just feel-good vibe of people wanting to support their friends and family and see, you know, their their work reach. Um, There'll be a lot of enthusiasts in the audience. Yes, a those. lot of enthusiasts. You know, a lot of, yeah. of response from the audience, which is always fun to see the, how the audience thinks, you know, verbally thinks and feels about the work. Okay, and that reminds me, we have only, like, about a minute to go, and I have a you know, a, a, a DJ in there who doesn't let me get away with murder here. I will say one more, which is opening night is The Florida Project. Um, it's a film that um, is by Sean Baker that was... Uh-oh, there goes that music. Go ahead. Uh, the, the Florida Project is a, is a opening the festival and I think um, highlights some issues of hidden homelessness, but also is a, a joyful... Um, film uh, as well, Florida uh, Project. yeah, about youth and and 
you know, navigating challenges and uh, features Willem Dafoe and is going to be a great, uh, fun time. Uh, our 100 days. Which? Our 100 days. I heard darker and sick to death were great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I have had my head down. <laughs> and I'm working. I haven't even looked at the schedule. Oh, come on. There's nothing else you want to call out? Okay. All right, y'all. Film Festival in New Orleans. It is a great thing. It has grown so much from its early days. And I was actually involved at one stage where I was kind of frustrated with the fact that it wasn't more and and part of a group of people who kind of talked about it. And so I I am particularly um, pleased with what you all are doing. And um, I'll go get on the website and figure it out. And and I'll be sure and go to what I can when I get back in town on Monday because I've got to go to go see my aunt by and respect her. Um, thank you all for being here. It thank was, you so uh, much. Thank you. thank you. Thanks, and, Jean. Uh, good luck with it. And um, everybody out there, film festival time. October not to be missed. Give them the days again. October the 11th through 19th. Thank you. NewOrleansFilmSociety.org or NewOrleansFilmFestival.org. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, everybody.